It's a great blessing to be here. I'm thankful that you're here at college. And I was just thinking while I was on the platform just now, I, want, I was just thinking, what would I say to these young people to get while they're here in, in school? What, what advice would I give? Not, not that anybody here is necessarily wanting my advice or that anybody is necessarily my advice, but uh, if I may give a, just a, a couple of unsolicited pieces of advice, while you're here in college, I would encourage you to enjoy your time. You know, it'd be easy for you just to be rushing and hustling from one place to the next and trying to get this assignment done and that assignment done, and, and, and uh, you just, just forget to just stop and enjoy it. This is a great place. These are great days. This is a great opportunity that you have. You have some great friendships that you're making and forging right now. Enjoy it. Uh, don't scorn and laugh and, and re- wish judgment upon your roommate. Enjoy your roommate, you know. <laughs> Uh, enjoy your teachers, enjoy your classes. This is a great blessing, just great opportunity that God's given you. Enjoy Jesus while you're here and enjoy his goodness and his love and his mercy and his kindness in your life. Uh, Just enjoy God's goodness right here and right now. Enjoy your time. Enjoy the opportunities that you have. These moments are going to pass. You're going to be done right now. It seems like it's dragging on into the next millennium and you feel like it's going to be like the tribulation. Oh, Lord, please deliver me from these days. I feel like the, uh, you know, you go to college and you're pre-trib, but you think maybe I'm post-trib. Maybe these... Maybe the Antichrist is one of my preacher teachers, you know. I, I don't know. I'm just trouble and groan and all this difficulty. But it's not so. You're still pre-trib and you be pre-trib till Jesus comes. Uh, uh, and, uh, but you're not, you don't need to change your because you're going through a little tribulation right now. But I, I enjoy it. Enjoy it. Don't, don't miss out on the opportunity to just enjoy this moment. Enjoy. Necessarily have tomorrow. You're not promised tomorrow. I'm not either. So what a sad day it would be to just move on, always wishing for the next. Uh, A young lady that was in college with my wife and I, when we were in school, she said, you know, she got married and she started to have kids. She said, if I were to go back and advise Christian girls in college, I would say, enjoy where you're at. Enjoy the moment. She said, you can live your whole life saying, oh, I wish I was married. And then, oh, I wish I had kids. And then always wishing for the next step. Just enjoy right now. Enjoy where you're at. And enjoy Jesus in this current moment that you have. Second thing I would say is get as many tools as you can. I mean, I was thinking as they were playing, they, they are, everything that's done here is for a purpose. It's not just done because we couldn't think of anything else to do at the particular moment. Uh, and, and I was thinking as they were playing, you know, they're, they're saying everything they're saying. Hey, take your songbooks out and look at these words. And, and I was noticing some people singing along. And I thought that's so good because, you know, you're going to leave here if you'll, if you'll get as many. And you're going to go out needing every single one of those tools tools to teach. You're going to have a whole group of songs that you're going to be able to teach uh, wherever you go and minister as a missionary or an evangelist or a pastor. And so glean all that you can. Learn all that you can. Learn how to learn and, and uh, take all those tools. Right now, guys will totally relate to this. You're just acquiring a toolbox. And you know, the best Cadillac toolbox of them all is one of those cabinets that starts here and goes all the way down. And it's about this wide and this deep and, and it's got drawers 
drawers in it and the drawers are nicer than your cabinet drawers at home and you got tools here and well, I mean that that's just a guy's dream to have all those tools. Well, that's what you're doing. You're just filling it up right now. You're borrowing tools right now. You're you're seeing how the teachers and the preacher and the and different ones use their tools. No, 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 no. Just you'll borrow them for a little while, but pretty soon you'll acquire your own and just get those tools and file them away and you'll use them. You'll use everything. Everybody that I know that's graduated from college and ministry, gone out in ministry, I say, man, I wish I could just have just, if I could have a week back at college, I could just glean some more. So enjoy the moment and glean all these tools. You'll use every single one of them. Let's take this morning turn to 2 Kings chapter number 7, would you? 2 Kings chapter 7 in the Word of God. And uh, what a great blessing. People ask how we're doing. We're doing great. Uh, the Lord's been so good to us. I've been an evangelist now for 27 years, traveling and preaching, preaching and traveling. And I'm so thankful to the Lord for His goodness and allowing me to travel. My wife, Amber, is with me in Kenosha. We're, at, um, we're in Kenosha at Southport Baptist Church with Pastor DeLeon. And uh, we'd love to have you come visit and uh, just take some time off and come down to the services. We have tonight at 6.30 and tomorrow night at 6.30. And uh, it would be great. In fact, it would, I just think it would be just right to just cancel classes for the next couple days <laughs> just so you could uh, just come on down to the revival. But we've been having great meetings, and, and, and I thank the Lord for what God across this country. We've been seeing people saved, and, uh, and we're just going to stay at it till Jesus comes. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, thank you for the privilege that you've given to us to open up the Bible. Please fill me with your spirit. Lord, I know that without your filling and without your anointing and endowment of power, there's not going to be a whole lot that's going to be accomplished today. I need your help. And Lord, these my listeners need your help. So fill them and, and, and anoint them and help them to have spirit-filled ears and spirit-filled hearts so that we all respond the way we ought to, to your word. We're prostering ourselves, Lord, to, to hear from you. You're speaking to us. Lord, we want to respond rightly to you. And I pray that we would. I pray that you would bless this place. Thank you for it, for the testimony that it's had down through the years, for the way that you've used it, and for the graduates all over the country that are preaching the Word of God and ministering in different various capacities. Lord, continue to keep your hand upon this place. Lord, help this institution and this ministry to stay straight and strong until Jesus comes. And I pray that there would just be a, a constant spirit of revival. Lord, spark revival here in our hearts today. We ask it in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. There are three times in the Bible when the phrase, the windows of heaven, is used. And the Old Testament particularly, you'll find the first time opened in Genesis chapter number 7 and 8 when God opened the windows of heaven down in judgment. He opened the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven and the fountains of the deep together brought rain and water so high that it covered the highest mountain. Another time is found in the book of Malachi chapter 3 when God says, prove me now herewith saith the Lord of hosts and see if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven. And he says that in the context of bringing tithes and offerings to the Lord, tithes and offerings to the Lord. He says, prove me now. In that passage, he, it's the only time he gives a promise and says, prove me now herewith saith the Lord. See if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough and to receive it. That's in the context of giving. And, and uh, what a blessing it is to be able to give. I hope that you won't wait till you get out of college to learn to give. I hope that right now you'll learn to give and you'll go through life just being a giver and not being a taker. Uh, what a blessing a giver is and what a misery 
caretaker is. Uh, I, I heard of a preacher years ago that was just newly pastoring in Florida. And uh, he was trying to go out into the community, meet some of the people that go to his church and, and uh, that went to his church. And some of the people would come in and meet him. And uh, he said this guy came in. He was part of his church. I don't know how deeply he was involved, but he came in and, and he was newly elected sheriff in the area. And so he came in talking about all his accomplishments. It was a Monday morning. And the general rule is you never mess with the preacher on Monday morning. But uh, he, he, was, uh, he was just going on and on about all his accomplishments and all the things that he'd done. And uh, it was driving the pastor crazy. And then finally he stood up to leave and he said, oh, by the way, pastor, he said, I'm not one of those Old Testament tithers. And the pastor said, I had had enough. And he said, I don't know if I should have done it or not. He said, it was my first pastorate. And sometimes you do crazy things when you're first pastoring. He said, but I swung back in my chair. And he said, I swung my feet up and landed them on my desk. And I said, glory to God, I've been waiting all my life to meet a New Testament giver. He said, now in the Old Testament, they gave 10%. He said, but in the New Testament, they sold everything they had and they laid it at the apostles' feet. He said, now here are my feet. He said, I think it'd probably only take you about two weeks to liquidate your assets. And he said, when you do, he said, you can come lay it right here at my feet. <laughs> don't, don't mess with the preacher on Monday morning. That's a bad day. And uh, I don't even know why we're even quibbling about it. Old Testament, New Testament. This is before, before the law ever came into be. Abraham gave tithes of all that he possessed. And why would you argue over something as basic as that when it invites the blessing of God and opens the windows of heaven? Well, the second time the windows of heaven is mentioned is right here in 2 Kings chapter 7. I want to draw your attention to what it says. Notice, please, verse number 1. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate. Of Samaria. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. Now I don't know who here today needs the windows of heaven opened on your behalf. Maybe you need the windows of heaven opened physically. You're going through some physical trials and difficulties that you wouldn't have expected and that you don't like to think about and that no doctor seems to have any clue or answer as to how to solve. Maybe you're going through some difficulties within your family and, and, and you're here with your mind on your studies and your classes and, and yet back lingering like a low grade or high grade headache is all your family problems and you're trying to figure out how you can solve them and if, if you're the cause of them and if, if there's any way that you can fix them and what can be done about them and you don't know what to do. Uh, maybe you need God's hand and windows of heaven open financially and that generally is the case in a Bible college setting where you say, Lord, here I am trying to get done with classes and finish this semester out and make it through and, and get good grades and I don't even know how I'm going to pay my bill. I need your hand. Maybe you need the windows of heaven open spiritually. The devil's just been attacking you in the world and the flesh are working in unholy axes of evil against you and you don't know exactly what to do. You need the Lord to alleviate some of this and open the windows of heaven. I want to preach to you this morning on the subject when you need the windows of heaven opened. 
And I want you to see it not only from 2 Kings chapter 7, but I want you to see it from 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. Look please back to 2 Kings chapter 6 and notice what the Bible says in verse number 24. 2 Kings 6 and verse 24. And the Bible says, And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his host and besieged Samaria. I want you to notice three divisions in our thinking this morning that will help us understand when we need the windows of heaven open and how to get them opened. Uh, When we need the windows of heaven and how to get them open. Number one, I want you to notice there was an unbelievable situation in this passage. It's an unbelievable situation, the the likes of which are legend and lore, the likes of which which you you would never have even thought possible to take place in in Bible times and um, amongst God's people no less. You you might expect this in a pagan world, but amongst God's people. Look at 2 Kings 6 and verse 24. It says that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, that's the nation directly north of Israel, still is today, and Ben-Hadad was a a thorn in the side of Israel and, and the people of God. It says he gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. Now, a siege is an old strategy of war. And it was common in days gone by where they would surround the city and they would lock it all down. No one going in and no one coming out. No supply going in. No messenger for help going out. And so they besieged the city. And they besieged the city in Samaria, which would be Israel, and they they shut it down. I want you to notice it was an unbelievable situation. First, because the enemy had surrounded the city. The enemy had surrounded the city. I'll tell you, he has surrounded the city all across this country today. You look at a voting map and you see all the cities are blue and everything else is red. And all the cities usually, though the state as a whole and the populace as a whole throughout is is conservative, the cities are just ranked full on blue and worse yet, woke And the enemy has surrounded the city. A pastor and I were just talking before chapel uh, uh, about an incident that recently happened. And it just goes to underscore that that safety is down and security is down within the cities. And the people that are crying safety the loudest are the ones that don't know first base about what true safety is and where true security comes from. And and so the enemy has surrounded the city. Just in a recent election, a friend that I know in in Charlotte, North Carolina, posted and said uh, church planning in city church planning anyone? Why? Because the cities are completely rock gut. And how the cities go is how usually the nation goes. Why? Because the enemy has surrounded the city. And the Bible speaks about that, by the way, in the early part of Isaiah. He says, woe unto them that build house upon house. And so there's no room. There's no. The Bible speaks about that and decries that because it creates a, a socialistic mindset that is anti-God and anti-Bible. And this same friend said, I believe socialism is a wall to the gospel. And I said, that's a very interesting statement. I said, why would you say that? He said, because socialism is all about you owe me. And the gospel is completely undeserved. And that's very true. And so here you have it. The enemy had surrounded the city. A few years ago, the Lord allowed us to start a tent ministry, an evangelistic tent ministry. And we go all over. We've had, with the Lord's help, 11 different tent meetings around the country. And my, how the Lord's worked. Our first one was in Minneapolis or St. Paul. We were in the Twin Cities. Do you know Minneapolis and St. Paul are two cities side by side, only six hours from this spot. And there are 300,000 people in both of them. Do you know how many churches are in Minneapolis? Bible-believing churches like the kind that we would, would, would support and, and undergird and, and want to be a part of. Three in Minneapolis. 
with a total population of maybe 200 in those churches, maybe, on a good day. Do you know how many are in St. Paul? Three, with maybe a total population in those churches of 150 or maybe 100. Three, six churches in a span of 600,000 people. That's just Minneapolis and St. Paul. That doesn't count any of the 45 suburban areas and suburbs and villages and hamlets and, 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 and places all around the cities. You're talking one to two million people, maybe three in the greater, greater Minneapolis area. Three, three churches in each of the Twin Cities. So we went, we were in St. Paul with our tent set up right there in the corner of Iowa and White Bear Avenue. And we were knocking on doors and witnessing and passing out tracks. There was a, a car parked in, on the street right next to a, a fluent house in, in an affluent neighborhood. And uh, we, we went and there was a teenage girl in that car, I guess, waiting for her mom. She was cleaning the house and her brothers were in the back playing video games. And I said, hey, we're right here. We're passing out gospel tracks because we have a tent just a couple blocks away. And we're trying to get people to come to the tent. We're having special meetings. We want to give you an invitation. I gave her uh, the gospel track. I said, I said, here, I said, this, this gospel track that we have is... Is, is about John 3.16. I said, can I, can I give you this gospel track? And, and she, she, she said, sure. And I, I said, here, it's got John 3.16. You, you've heard of John 3.16? She said, no. I said, you've never heard John 3.16? I said, have you ever heard of John 3.16? She said, no. Now, my wife has done children's meetings with me for the last 25 years, and, and I will tell you that more and more there are children in our children's meetings that are completely unfamiliar with John 3.16. Why? Because the enemy has surrounded the city. Recently, my wife had a, had a, a boy in the class that uh, when the girls won, he wanted to identify as a girl. Now, that's really convenient. But anyway, uh, uh, that, she said it doesn't work that way. Sorry. Why is that? Because the enemy has surrounded the city. Look at what the Bible says. Look at what it says in verse number 25. It says, and there was a great famine in Samaria. Why is this an unbelievable situation? Because the enemy has surrounded the city. Why is it an unbelievable situation? Because there's a famine in the land. And by the way... When the enemy surrounds the city, the next step is famine. The next step is famine. By the way, America has never really known widespread famine ever in their history. There's been difficulties. There's been droughts. There's been trouble, but there's never been famine. Almost every nation that has adopted socialism has experienced famine. And so now there's famine. Famine in the land. The Bible speaks of a famine that's not going to be of bread or of water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. And we're right there right now. The famine right now is not bread or water. You can still go buy milk. You can still go buy bread. You can still go buy cheese. You can still get food for your daily needs. But the famine of the word of God is unlike you've ever seen. I'm not speaking from theory. I'm not speaking of what may come in the future. I'm telling you what it is right now. There's a famine in the land. Uh, notice verse 25. It says, and they besieged it. Watch it now. And they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for four score pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. So I want you to notice it was an unbelievable situation because they were trading what was valuable for what was worthless. 
They were trading what was valuable for what was worthless. Now, I don't know my audience completely. Uh, are there any hunters here? Do we have any hunters? Hunters? Do we have some hunters? All right. Are there any girl hunters here? I just want to know. Oh, we got a couple. Okay. Probably some of these girl hunters can outshoot the guys. Anyway, uh, uh, yes. And so when you go hunting, I, I love hunting. I love all things hunting. I'm already getting the itch for the season. And I, I like to dress up in, like a bush and put kind of crazy odors on my body and climb up in a tree and sit for hours on end. It, it really is fun. And, and so... Um, <laughs> I love to hunt, but you know, when I'm hunting, I'm hunting for meat. Every once in a while, I'm hunting for a rack. I certainly would, would take a good rack if I see it, uh, but I'm hunting for meat. When I harvest that deer, I'm looking for the back straps and the inside, the tenderloin. I'm looking for the, the, the uh, shoulders and I'm looking for the haunches. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for meat. I sometimes make it into burgers. Sometimes we just slice it into steak. Sometimes we make it into cube steak and, and I'm looking for meat. I really don't care too much about the head. Now, I have a friend, Paul Crow, who likes the, the neck, and he, he has a way to, to put that in a roast. And, but there's just, you've got to get through gristle, and you've got to get through tendons and a lot of other things. I don't really care that much about the, the neck. I, I'll, I'll eat it at Paul's house, but, you know, and, and I'm not interested in the head, unless it has a rack. Then I'm interested in it. What are you going to get from the head for meat? Maybe a little bit of the jaw, maybe. The tongue, the brain, if you're into something like that. <laughs> But, but not much more than that. There's, just, there's not a lot of, uh, of expectation for meat on the head, but that's what they're doing. And they're not doing it for, from game. They're getting it from their donkeys. They're beast of burdens. That's a problem. And they're doing it for four score, 80 pieces of silver. Now, I don't know how much that is in our modern day and economy, but that's a lot of money. Four score pieces of silver, a trident ounce of silver right now, is, it hovers somewhere between $18 to $22. Uh, four score pieces of silver, that's a lot of money. They were trading what was valuable for what was worthless. And it says, uh, it says the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. Yes, yes, that is what you scrape off your windshield or get a little frustrated after you've just washed your car and there the, the dove has blessed you and you say, I don't like this. I wish that he, what in the world has happened? And yet they're gathering that up for food. The famine is so great. And they're trading it for five pieces of silver. Do you see it? Watch this now. They're trading what is, va- what is valuable for what is worthless. Here's a young person at Baptist College of Ministry and has an opportunity to serve and has teachers that love them and are praying for them and has parents back home that are supporting them and ha- has so many opportunities right in front of you and you throw it all away so that you can go down the path of false doctrine or go down the path of, uh, of sin or go down the path of, of immorality. What are you doing? You're trading what is valuable for what is worthless. Here's a young lady that has a mom at home that's praying on her knees for her daughter to turn out right and love the Lord and serve God. And she has potential and possibility. And right in front of her, she has the chance to serve God and a future all laid out. And she turns it all away for a life of worldliness and sin. What has she done? She's trading what is valuable for what is worthless. You see, they were, they were in such a bad way that they had no idea what value was at this moment. At this moment, a trident ounce of silver wasn't worth a whole lot. But, but boy, something to eat was. Feeding their immediate moment was. You see, they were trading what is valuable for what is worthless. Verse number 26. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. 
And he said, If the Lord do not help thee, if the Lord do not help thee, when shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? I want you to notice that it was an unbelievable situation because they were at the end of their resources. They were at the end of their resources. You say, what do you mean? Well, here's the king walking by on a wall. A lot of times a wall would be as wide as this plat- thick, as, as, as wide as this platform, sometimes in certain places as deep as this platform. And he's walking by. He's trying to figure out what to do to fix the situation. And this woman cries out from the floor of the city, Help, my lord, O king. And he looks at her aghast. And he says, With what? The barn floor is empty. The wine press is dry. I have no resources. Now listen to me. Acknowledging that you're at the end of your resources is a good step to take. As long as you take the next step and turn to the one that has unlimited resources. Uh, If you just acknowledge that you're at the end of your resources, eventually that'll lead to despair, as you'll see in a moment. But he, he cries out and says, with what? I have nothing to give. When a person cries out and says, I, I have no ability to save myself, that's a good step as long as they take the next step and turn to Jesus, who's the only one that can save. Uh, when someone says, I, I have no ability in and of myself to live the Christian life and to live in victory and to live as I ought, it's good when they acknowledge that as long as they take the next step and say, Lord, you have endless ability. Would you live your life through me? Watch verse number 28. The king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, This woman said unto me, give thy son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him, and I said unto her on the next day, give thy son that we may eat him, and she hath hid her son. You say, I didn't know this was in the Bible. Well, there it is, black and white. You say, wow. 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 They were an unbelievable situation, number five, because they had exalted human appetite above life itself. They had exalted human appetite above life itself. Boy, this would give new meaning when mom, when the son comes marching in after a long day of play and says, Hey, mom, what's for supper? And she gives him a starry eyed look. It's unthinkable. Anybody here ever heard of the Donner Pass? It wasn't the brightest day in American history. (laughs) Cannibalism? Yeah. Why? Because they'd exalted human appetite above life itself. Now, I hate abortion with everything that I have. And and it's a stunning thing to me, Pastor, that we have been able to turn abortion and the issue back to the states. That is just a a total full-on miracle. You can never say you've never seen a miracle. I never thought that I would see that day. I thought it would have to be a civil war, something of the sort to, to, to cause this. But now you've seen it go back to the states. What an amazing day. I was born... The year that Roe v. Wade was passed. My mom was 40. They asked my mom if she wanted to have an abortion because of her age. I know. I've lived through the entire era of Roe v. Wade. And now it's turned back. But you know there's an underlying sin that's worse than abortion. That's the whole cause and feeder of abortion. It's fornication. Adultery. 
And what is it? It's exalting human appetite above life itself. Verse number 30, And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman, that he rent his clothes, and he passed by upon the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth upon, within upon his flesh. Then he said, God, do so, and more also to me, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. Watch now. They are at a place of despair. It's an unbelievable situation because they're at a point of despair. Why are they at a point of despair? Because they never Never took that second step. They realized that they had no resources, but they never turned to God. And so now he tears his clothes, and she can see from the base of the city floor up there on the wall that he has sackcloth on underneath his robe. That means he already put sackcloth on that day. He, you know what they use sackcloth for? To carry garbage, dirty vegetables, or worse. And now he has it on, touching his skin. They notice it. It's written in the sacred text. But why? Because he's at a place of despair. I will say this to you, young person. Unless you look to God as a preacher or as a preacher's wife in this day, you will have issues come to you that you have absolutely no idea how to help or solve. Brother Gilmore, I never thought in my day that I would see things as they are now. I thought the problems were big when I first entered into evangelism 27 years ago. I can't even imagine how some of them are now. And sometimes as a preacher, you don't even know what to say when the problems come. The mess is so bad. It's so deep. It's so awful. You say, Lord, give me. I am falling on you. I have no idea how to solve this situation. You have got to help me. And if you don't turn to God, you're going to be in a place of constant despair. But he wasn't turning to God. The king wasn't a godly man. Look at verse 31. It says, Then he said, God do so and more also to me if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. (laughs) What? Yeah, look at it. Verse 31. Verse 32. But Elisha sat in his house and the elders sat with him and the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Elisha speaking now, see ye how this son of a murderer hath sent to take away mine head. Look when the messenger cometh. Shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him and said, watch this now, the messenger speaking, the messenger from the king, behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? (laughs) Oh, watch. This is an unbelievable situation. Why? The enemy has surrounded the city. Uh, they, They have exalted human appetite above life itself. They've traded what is valuable for what is worthless. They're at the end of their resources. They're at a place of despair. And if that weren't enough, they blame the preacher. It's the preacher's fault. Now, this is as old as as Nero burning down Rome and blaming the Christians. It's as old as the devil blaming blaming God's people. It's as old as Elijah uh, being blamed by Ahab, saying, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? But what what craziness! God is to blame, and ultimately that's what it is. It's not just the preacher they're aiming at. By the way, when the devil attacks you, he doesn't care anything about you. He's aiming at your Savior. He's aiming at your, at your God. He's aiming at Jesus Christ. He hates him with an unmitigated passion. And he's only just trying to destroy you because you're representing Jesus. And he hates Jesus with all that he has. And, and, and so here, there's just an unbelievable situation. I want you to notice number two, an unlikely solution. Look at chapter 7. 
Then Elisha said, hear ye the word of the Lord. By the way, young people, that is where we need to go when we're in an unbelievable situation. The word of the Lord. That's what we need to hear when we're in an unbelievable situation. The word of the Lord. We don't need to hear psychology. We don't need new advances in technology. We don't need to hear psychiatry. We don't need to hear some some preacher's opinion. We need to hear, thus saith the Lord. Elisha spoke and he said, hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Well, they weren't selling that for now. At at this point, they were selling a fourth of a cab of dove's dung. They were selling it for five pieces of silver and a donkey's head for four score pieces of silver. Now he says tomorrow about this time, the whole economy is going to be turned back to what it ought to be. Well, who does he think he is? Well, Elisha's not sucking this out of his thumb. He's not pulling this out of the thin air. He's not reading your best life now. He is getting this straight from God. That's where he's getting it. Hear ye the word of the Lord. Verse 2. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God. Watch the unbelief now. And said, behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? Even God can't help us. We're too far gone. And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. Watch verse 3. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? You know what I hope and pray? That some student at Baptist College of Ministry will get a hold of that verse, memorize it, and and make it your motto for a while. Why sit we here until we die? Why sit we here until we die? There is work to be done. There are souls to be saved. There are answers to prayer to be found and collected. Why sit we here until we die? Don't commiserate with those in the coffee shop about how bad things are, thinking that they're just bad and they're going to get worse and there's just a fatalistic uh, vortex that's taking you down, 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 down into a whirlpool and that's all fatalism and unbelief is. Why sit we here until we die? Uh, There's something to do. There are tracks to write. There are neighborhoods that need a bus route. There are souls that need to be saved within a stone's throw of this place. There are lives that can be changed. There are people struggling to stay off drugs just one day. They'd like to go one day. If we could just only go one day without the misery hanging on our necks. No, there there are people that need rescued. Why sit we here until we die? They're they're not looking to rescue. They're looking to to self-preserve. Verse number four, if we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, uh, we die. Also, he says in verse number four, now therefore come and let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. And they rose up in the twilight. If I were you, I would highlight or underline that phrase right there at the beginning of verse five. To go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. Now don't read verses 6 and 7 or you're going to mess up my sermon. Look at verse 8. It says, And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it. And came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. Here's another verse you need to memorize and live by for a while. It says, Then said they one to another, We do not well. This day is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will, become, will come upon us. Now therefore come, that we may go and tell the king's household. What? 
They, they were getting all the loot. They went into one tent and there was ramen noodles hot off the microwave. And there was chicken. There must have been the Baptist, few Baptists in the Syrian army. And there was chicken hot, uh, hot from Kentucky fried. And, and they, they, they got all their, they start getting their silver and gold and weapons. And wow, they take it and they hide it in the earth under the tent. And, and they went and got some more. And then they said, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. You know, I'll be honest with you. I get weary of being around, and sadly, some preachers who are nothing but negative. Nothing's good. Everything's bad. It's all getting worse. I get weary of that. And I'll just tell you, I made up my mind a long time ago, I'm not going to be around it. I'm just not going to be around it. I'm tired of this world's bad. It's getting worse. There's no hope. And we just sit here until Jesus comes. It's just there's a Hebrew word for that. Baloney. It's just ridiculous. I'm not going to be a part of all of that. And I'll tell you, it is grading. It's degrading. It is problematic. It's not biblical to have that spirit. A few years ago, there was an institution that put out something that churches, churches could make available in their bulletin every Sunday. Oh, joy. And it was called, What, what in the World? And at the bottom, it's just making Christians aware of what the devil's up to. Why do I need that? Like, are you kidding me? I, I got eyes on the front of my head. Why do I need to commiserate and wash in all that sewer all day long? I know what the devil's up to. And then now there's a, a well-known preacher that, that puts out one negative, terrible, awful, false doctrine, and an insert for your church bulletin. I mean, what a way to give, give a people a lift on Sunday morning. And then at the bottom it says, now Christian, don't get discouraged because there's hope. I'm like, are you kidding me? Every one of your news points is nothing but discouragement and misery. No, thank you very much. I'm not having any part of that. No, I won't do it. This is a day of good tidings. Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. That's the good news. We call that the gospel. It's a day of good tidings. Jesus Christ is coming again. That's hope and good news. This is a day of good tidings. And don't you let anyone ever tell you otherwise. There are still 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee. And there's a lot of great things that are happening right now. I'm thankful for whatever happened 60 years ago and 100 years ago. But my God is a God of yesterday and today and forever. And he's working Right now, all across this country, I want you to think about this. There are 16,000 independent Baptist churches in this country. If this past Sunday, in one-third of those churches, one person was saved in each of the one-third of those churches. You know what that means Sunday? There were 5,000 people saved. And that's not just possible, that's probable. And you know what that is? That's good news. And that's what you need to focus on. That's what will get you down the road. Well, who did God use to turn this situation around? I know a seminary grad. Nope. No offense, seminary students. I know a Bible college grad. Nope. I mean, I'm here and I'm for you and I'm 100% for this place. But nope. You know who God used to turn this situation around? Four lepers. Four leprous men. And you know, they weren't trying to get their name written down. They weren't taking a selfie next to all their loot. <laughs> they weren't posting about how spiritual they were because they had this great idea to not sit here until we die, but to come up with some solution. They were just trying to get out of their mess. And they said, if we stay here, we die. We go into the city, we die. There's a tiny little chance we might live if we go that way. And so they went that way. And God, in all of His goodness, decided to put their story down in the Bible for leprous men. 
When we started this tent meeting, we had four evangelists that went up into St. Paul. We've been from coast to coast in a lot of cities. This year, we went 11 hours north of North Dakota into Manitoba, Canada. And, and God has moved in mighty ways in all of these places. I said to the guys in the first meeting, I said, hey, guys, we're going to have a quartet sing every night. He said, we are. That's awesome. Who? I said, us. <laughs> he said, oh, oh, Okay. And you know, at first I thought, we're going to call it the Victory Gospel Crusade. I said, we're going to call ourselves the Victory Heirs. Doesn't that have a ring to it? Wow, it has a ring to it. I saw that night Baptist College bus out here. When you sell that, Pastor, just sell it to me, and we'll put the Victory Heirs on the side. It just kind of has a ring to it, you know? But by the end of the meeting, I realized, you know, we're nothing, and if anything happens, it's all God. And you know what I decided to call our quartet? Four beggars who found bread. That's all we are. That's all you are. If you ever think you're more than that, you've got a wrong view of yourself. God doesn't use many mighty, many noble, many great. He he uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. You want to do something great for God, you're going to have to go low. You're going to have to go down. If you want to go up, you're going to have to go down. That's God's way of things. If you're going to be used of God, you're going to have to get on your face. And you're going to have to say, God, I don't have any resources in myself. Please use me. And God used four leprous men. And they arose in the twilight. There was an unbelievable situation, but there's an unlikely solution. Some of you say, preacher, I can't. I don't even know how to. I can't even play the radio. Everybody around here is playing violins and cellos. That's one of the requirements of being a member. You've got to be baptize and play a violin, right? <laughs> now, that's not where I, I do, Pastor. I'm, I'm kind of, I have three goals in my life to get people say baptize and play in the accordion. And so, anyway, by the way, the surest way to keep your church from going into compromise is to have accordion music. I'll tell you that right now. It's not so much the beauty of it, it's just like it chases all the, anything bad away. Anyway, <laughs> and so, and so, uh, I play the accordion for those of you that don't know. But, but, but here, uh, God, God is using these four leprous men. Wow. Well, if God, if God can use them, maybe God can use me. Preacher, I can't do anything. I'm not really a straight-A student. I mean, I'm trying to do best I can, but uh, could God use me? Yes, yes. And he wants to use you. Now, look this, and we're through. Look at what he says back in verses 7 and 8. It says, wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses. Wait, wait, look at verse 6. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Watch now. Verse 6, verse 5 says that the leprous men rose up in the twilight. Look at verse 7. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight. When did God scare the Syrians off? When the lepers moved by faith. God honors that. It's just like when Abraham and Isaac were going up one side of the mountain, God was bringing a ram up the other side of the mountain. God moves towards us when we move toward Him. God moves to give us a solution when we move in faith toward Him. We don't always see it. You're not always going to see it and spell it out and have your spreadsheet and all your analytics all figured out and everything, wine charts and pie charts. and everything. It doesn't work that way. It never has worked that way. Do the best you can. Try to figure it out. Be organized. But at the end of the day, you need a miracle. You need God to open the windows of heaven. 
It's no more complicated than that. So when these leprous men were talking, well, if we stay here, we're going to die. If we go in the city, we're going to die. That's the tiny little chance that we'll live. We may live or die. It's a 50-50 chance going one way or the other. Let's move in that direction. And when they arose up in the twilight, God scared the Syrians off. And you know how, you know how I used to think, when I first started in evangelism, I'd drive down these beautiful, beautiful city highways and see these cities sprawling. I say, I know that America is not really anywhere in the Bible and prophecy, but how in the world could God crumble this nation? I just, it just seems almost incredulous and impossible. Then 9-11 happened. And then a few years ago, COVID happened. <laughs> COVID happened. Shut the whole thing down. We're strong and mighty and we got a great army. And then somebody goes, achoo! And everybody runs for the woods. <laughs> just crazy and and now it might come back again (laughs) do do you know what God used to send Syria to flight this is all he did this I'm not trying to be theatrical I'm I'm really trying to make a point this is all God did to scare away the Syrians boom they heard a noise and why did they hear a noise? because four leprous men moved towards a solution listen to me you'll never change the future until you're willing to disturb the present And God wants some of you to disturb the present right now. Nothing changes if nothing ever changes. And these lepers men, had they stayed, it would have been a disaster. But they moved toward the solution. And look at God scared the whole city off. Verse 7, it says, Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. Later in the text, it says they called the king, his porters, they came and checked it out. And it says, it's true, it's true. And, And they came and checked. And the scripture says in verse 16, the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians so a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel. Oh, think of that. God's word is sufficient. And God's word does come true. And two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have a charge of the gate and the people trode upon him in the gate and he died as the man of God had said who spake when the king came down to him. So you know the only one that didn't enjoy didn't enjoy it, didn't get to taste of it when God opened the windows of heaven, the man who spoke in unbelief. God wants to open the windows of heaven on your behalf, but you're going to have to move in humility towards the solution.